Primati Bhaktivedanta Swami Nityamani Namaste Saraswati Deve Gauravani Bhachani Nivasis Nivani Paskatyade Satani Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya so it's August 11th, 2021, Bhakti Center in New York, over the internet, and we are reading from Srimad Bhagavatam. Ninth Canto, Chapter 11, Lord Ramachandra Rules the World. We're going to start with text 26, and we're going to read to the end of the chapter. Okay, so text 26. Ashikta margam gando dai karinam mara shiksharai swaminam prapta alokya matam vasutaram iva Ashikta Margam. The streets were sprinkled. Ganda Udai. With perfumed water. Karinam. Of elephants. Mara Shikarai. With particles of perfumed liquor. Swaminam. The master or proprietor. Praptam. Present. Alokya, seeing personally. Matam, very opulent. Va, either. Sutaram, highly. Eva, as if. Srila Prabhupada's translation. During the reign of Lord Ramachandra, the streets of the capital Ayodhya were sprinkled with perfume water and drops of perfume liquor thrown about by elephants from their trunks. When the citizens saw the Lord personally supervising the affairs of the city in such opulence, they appreciated this opulence very much. Chilaprapa's purport. We have simply heard about the opulence of Ram Rajya during the reign of Lord Ramachandra. Now here is one example of the opulence of the Lord's kingdom. The streets of Ayodhya were not only clean, but also sprinkled with perfume water and drops of perfume liquor, which were distributed by elephants through their trunks. There was no need of sprinkling machines, for the elephant has a natural ability to suck water through its trunk and again throw it out in a shower. We can understand the opulence of the city from this one example. It was actually sprinkled with perfumed water. Moreover, the citizens had the opportunity to see the Lord personally supervising the affairs of the state. He was not a sleeping monarch, as we can understand from his activities in sending his brothers to see the affairs outside of the capital and punish anyone who did not obey the emperor's orders. This is called Digvijay. The citizens were all given facilities for peaceful life, and they were also qualified with appropriate attributes according to Varnashrama. As we have seen from the previous chapter, Varnashrama Gunam Vitan, the citizens were trained according to the Varnashrama system. A class of men were Brahmanas, a class were Vaishas, a class, a class were Kshatriyas, a class were Vaishas, and a class were Shudras. Without the scientific division, there can be no question of good citizenship. The king, being magnanimous and perfect in his duty, 
performed many sacrifices, and treated the citizens as his sons. And the citizens, being trained in the Varnashram system, were obedient and perfectly ordered. The entire monarchy was so opulent and peaceful that the government was even able to sprinkle the street with perfume water, what to speak of other management. Since the city was sprinkled with perfume water, we can simply imagine how opulent it was in other respects. Why should the citizens not have felt happy during the reign of Lord Ramachandra? All right, we're going to read the rest of this chapter. Is uh, no purport, just going to read the English. The palaces, the palace gates, the assembly houses, the platforms for meeting places, the temples and all such places were decorated with golden water pots and bedecked with various types of flags. Wherever Lord Ramachandra visited, auspicious welcome gates were constructed with banana trees and betel nut trees full of flowers and fruits. The gates were decorated with various flags made of colorful cloth and with tapestries, mirrors, and garlands. Wherever Lord Ramachandra visited, the people approached him with paraphernalia of worship and begged the Lord's blessings. O Lord, they said, as you rescue the earth from the bottom of the sea and your incarnation is a boar, may you now maintain it. Thus we beg your blessings. Thereafter, having not seen the Lord for a long time, both men and women, being very eager to see him, left their homes and got up on the roofs of their palaces, being incompletely satiated with seeing the face of the lotus-eyed Lord Ramachandra, they showered flowers upon him. Thereafter, Lord Ramachandra entered the palace of his forefathers. Within the palace were various treasures and valuable wardrobes. The sitting places on the two sides of the entrance door were made of coral. The yards were surrounded by pillars of Vaidurya money. The floor was made of highly polished Marakata money, that means emeralds. Mara, uh, Vaidurya money is a multicolored stone. Maybe it's like an opal, I don't know. And the foundation was made of marble. The entire palace was decorated with flags and garlands and bedecked with valuable stones shining with a celestial effulgence. The palace was fully decorated with pearls and surrounded by lamps and incense. The men and women within the palace all resembled demigods and were decorated with various ornaments which seemed beautiful because of being placed on their bodies. Lord Ramachandra, the Supreme Personality of Godhead, chief of the best learned scholars, resided in that palace with his pleasure potency, Mother Sita, and enjoyed complete peace. Without transgressing the religious principles, Lord Ramachandra, whose lotus feet are worshipped by devotees in meditation, enjoyed with all the paraphernalia of transcendental pleasure for as long as needed. Wow, what a description of opulence. Going back to the first verse, Asikta Margam Gandodai Karinamara Shikarai Swaminim Praptamalokya Matamba Sutaram Iva. So definitely extraordinary, extraordinary opulence. Uh, these descriptions of opulence very much remind us of the uh, opulence that are, is, we find in the heavenly planets. Yeah. And to some extent, the opulence that we find in the spiritual world. So this may be, the situation of great opulence in the reign of Lord Ramachandra may be a little bewildering because we have such an emphasis in our practice of bhakti on renunciation. That bhakti results in uh, vairagya vidya, in renunciation and knowledge. 
Srila Prabhupada often writes about except living on the bare necessities of life and not, uh, Rupa Goswami writes about not over-accumulating material things, Ajitara, not over-collecting, that over-collecting is a, is a um, cause of fall-down. Most people in the modern world uh, are guilty of over-collecting. Most people have more food than they can eat. as a tremendous amount of food waste in the developed countries. Most people have more clothes than they can wear. They have clothing that they wear maybe once a year. <laughs> uh, maybe they have clothing they don't wear at all and they still have clothing. Uh, they generally have more space than they can use. They have sections of their home. I remember uh, having uh, one of our neighbors when I was growing up had a room that they only used for guests when guests came. A whole living room. <laughs> uh, we, we only, they only used when they had guests. They didn't actually live in it. So this is the the situation. Uh, we learn often how in bhakti one is not supposed to do that. One is supposed to live simply, simple living, high thinking. But here we read about, and this is a typical description in the Bhagavatam, how when God is there and God's devotees are there, there's great opulence. And this, again, this opulence is comparable to the descriptions in the Bhagavatam of the heavenly planets. In, indeed, it says that the residents of Ayodhya look like demigods. You know, seats made out of the... Just think about some of this opulence that, that's being described here. So we have in the, the first verse the fact that the streets are sprinkled with perfume. Now, most modern perfume is synthetic its chemicals and it may not be good for anybody except that it makes money for the perfumery but real perfume is is costly and there's a lot of real perfume that is becoming less and less available in Kali Yuga it's quite interesting so one of the one of the things i like to do is to offer real perfume oils uh, to my deities. So I've studied this, and for example, like uh, frankincense. So uh, they're being over-harvested. They're, they're not being harvested in a sustainable way. And Many of the varieties of frankincense, there's at least two dozen varieties of frankincense, are no longer available, uh, or they're only available at a very high price. Uh, sandalwood, I mean, most of the sandalwood that one buys in most of our Iskand temples, we grind sandalwood for the deities, but uh, I'm sure that most of you have noticed that if you get this chandan, <laughs> uh, the chandan prasad, there's basically almost no smell, and there's almost no cooling effect. That is just like this gop. <laughs> ground up wood gob that's put on your forehead but you don't feel anything from it and that is because the sandalwood oil has already been extracted before they sell the wood and also real sandalwood is practically not available in, anymore I mean it's just uh, a few places in Australia but I've dealt with a number of places that uh, sell essential oil and they say we can't find genuine sandalwood Genu- you know, you can buy stuff from India, but it's not real. I mean, it's just like a lot of the, um, I mean, it's not perfume, but just like a lot of the olive oil on the market. 
it says olive oil, but actually it's something else. It's soybean oil, and it has some percentage of olive oil put in it, so they can, they're able to advertise it as olive oil, but it's, it's just cheating. This is the same as with sandalwood oil, and a guru is one of the uh, saddest situations. The a guru scent comes from a fungus that grows in aloe wood, so aloes wood, some small percentage of the aloes wood trees gets infected with this fungus. And over 5, 10, 20 years, the fungus spreads through the wood. And the fungus is, is highly fragrant, a very good aguru. The, the wood is heavy. It, it Normally wood floats. But if there's sufficient fungus, the wood will sink. And then this fungus is extracted uh, and the smell of oud is, is a guru or oud is, is a very strong smell. Uh, but what's happened is, again, there was harvesting without any concept of regeneration and sustainability, just exploitive harvesting. And so now actual oud is extremely difficult to get. Most uh, a guru one gets is synthetic. And uh, if you get genuine oud, a little bottle like this big of genuine oud, is easily two to five hundred dollars for a little tiny bottle like this of real oud. And uh, we think if we think about musk, one of the other fragrances of Chatusama, which is the fragrance of the Lord. So musk comes from the glands of the musk deer, and uh, again, these deer have been severely hunted, and so it, getting real musk is in most cases even illegal. Most of the musk you buy in the market is again synthetic. Or it's derived from plants that have some similar-ish sort of kind of smell. And used to be the musk was harvested after the deers would die. It was harvested with the himsa. Uh, today, if you want to get musk, uh, there's some you know, regulated killing of the musk deer. And again, we're talking about you know, a, a, little, a little bottle of, of real musk uh, is going to be you know, $500 to $2,000 for even just a small bottle of, of the real musk. So imagine a society where perfume is being thrown on the streets. I mean, actual perfume is being thrown on the streets to perfume the streets. I mean, it's, it's unimaginable. You know, these perfumes are so potent if you take just a drop of real musk or a drop of real oud and you you offer it to your deities, your whole room uh, will be fragrant for hours and hours and hours. Right? Or you just burn some real sandalwood, uh, some real uh, frankincense, some real myrrh, and again, everything is, is fragrant. You know, modern incense is, again, mostly synthetic, and it's, uh, it's burned on dried pig dung, actually, really, truly. Uh, a lot of modern, I love the, a lot of the modern perfumes, the modern incense, actually makes you sick. Now the real fragrances have, have a different effect. The real fragrances make you healthy. You know, it's quite fascinating that, like frankincense, myrrh, dragon's blood, all these various resin incense, when you burn them, they kill all the viruses, bacteria, and fungus in the room. And they make you healthy. So, you know, just imagine that if these sort of fragrances were being burned and these sort of oils were spewn about, 
people wouldn't get sick. They were natural decontaminants. You know, not like nowadays where if we want to sterilize everything, we use rubbing alcohol or some stinky, horrible stuff like Dettol or Lysol that just like, you know, some horrible smell. But imagine, you know, you're burning frankincense and myrrh and there's this divine, heavenly smell and it's killing all the molds, bacteria, and viruses in your environment. And I practically realized this. I practically applied this, you know, gone into places that were full of mildew and mold and after two, three times of burning real frankincense resin, it was gone. I mean, and it was gone. It was, you know, you kept the place aired out and it didn't come back and it was completely eradicated. So this is the natural opulence. You'll notice here that it's all these descriptions of natural opulence, precious jewels. I mean, again, today, if you want to buy a real emerald, you know, I don't know where you get a Vidoria stone. I'm not sure what a Vidoria stone is. But if you want to get a real emerald, then, you know, a small, small, small stone. <laughs> again, it's going to be hundreds or thousands of dollars. And a lot of the jewels that are sold today are, again, synthetic. They're man-made or they're artificially colored, they're artificially heated. And in the fourth canto, it's explained that Dhruva Maharaj, before boarding the Vaikuntha airplane, <laughs> before boarding the Vaikuntha airplane, he decorated himself with valuable jewels. Uh, valuable jewels have uh, some kind of uh, mystical effect, curative effect. And again, they make a person healthy. They mitigate the influence of bad planets. And a lot of this incense does this too. A lot of the different kinds of incense, it, uh, the smoke, the essential oils, they drive out ghosts and spirits and bad influences. They clear all the negative energy from the room and the, a lot of these stones do the same thing. They actually provide positive energy. And pearls, I mean, it's hardly possible today to get real pearls. In the whole United States, I think there's only two places that sell real pearls. And again, we're talking the cost, you know, a tiny little pearl, $200. I mean, we were in Bahrain, where uh, they do still find real pearls. And one necklace, we saw one necklace, three-string necklace, for $500,000, half a million dollars, for one pearl necklace. Most of the pearls in the world are what's called cultured pearls. That means they take a, a plastic bead, stick it in an oyster, and the oyster puts a little... A coating of nacre on it, and they call that a pearl. So, you know, real pearls have a tremendous effect on them. All these real jewels, they have a tremendous effect on the mind. And so this, these opulences are lost in modern society. I mean, there's a purple where Prabhupada talks about, you know, that these opulences are spiritual. He talks about silk and gold and, and jewels and fragrances, and they're actually spiritual. They have a spiritual effect. So the opulences in uh, in sattva gun, when we have opulence like in here as compared to the demigods, when there's opulences in sattva gun, they actually bring one a sense of satisfaction and interestingly enough, they bring one a sense of detachment. Isn't that fascinating? Because sattva gun is a sense of satisfaction and detachment. That one isn't trying to enjoy the world as the master of the world. That's one of the main qualities of Sattva Gun. I mean, Sattva Gun still has a kind of ego that, you know, 
I am so detached, <laughs> I'm so renounced, <laughs> the kind of ego in Sattva Guna also, it's not pure. But it, the ego of Sattva Guna is very conducive to spiritual life. And these kind of opulences actually invoke Sattva Guna. Just like Krishna says in the Bhagavad Gita that there's food in different modes. You know, people eating meat, people eating especially old meat like salami and bologna, bologna and, uh, you know, it, liquor that's going to influence them in tamagun. And then people eating, you know, too many chilies, too much salt, too much sugar, too much oil. That's going to influence them in rajagun. And people eating fruits and vegetables and fresh grains and milk, it's going to influence them in sattvagun. And the same is true with perfume, and the same is true with incense, and the same is true with jewels, and the same is true with fabrics, and the same is true with flowers. I mean, flowers also, I, I remember when um, my father, when I first joined the Hare Krishna movement, and my father would visit the temple, and he was astonished that we used real flowers. I mean, he was just like, wow, you're using real flowers. <laughs> and... I mean, he was just, again, completely astonished. You know, when you go to India still, when there's weddings or any big event, everything's decorated with real flowers. Even, you know, ordinary persons. And in South India, all the women are wearing mogra and jasmine in their hair. Not just ordinary persons. And something like that in the West, where we're so proud of our opulences, you know, it would be unthinkable. I mean, imagine you know, all the women in, in some big Western country wearing flesh, fresh flowers in their hair every day. Most of the decorations in the West are fake. You know, silk flowers or plastic flowers and things like that. You know, Prabhupada would criticize plastic jewelry. And most of the, again, most of the jewelry in, in the West is, it's fake. People can't afford, how are you going to afford to wear emeralds and sapphires and diamonds, you know? I think they say that to buy an engagement ring typically costs two to three months' salary. Imagine. Imagine a man has to put aside two to three months' salary to buy one engagement ring for his girlfriend. So this is, you know, we don't have this natural opulence. And, of course, there is a relationship. If we don't, it's a kind of a circular relationship. This natural opulence helps invoke sattva and a society that's not in sattva this opulence is removed by the earth. You know, in former times, the earth would make these jewels just available. You didn't even have to have these, you know, you didn't have to, of course, there were mines, even in Narada Muni's time, there were mines, but you didn't have to dig miles deep and endanger people's lives, you know, to get a little bit of diamonds or a little bit of gold. So the more that, the more that one is in tune with Krishna, the more that this opulence that helps us be in tune with Krishna is available to us. I mean, we can see this in a practical way, not with things, here we're all talking about things, but with people. The more that I'm attuned with Krishna, the more Krishna will provide me association of people that helps me become attuned with him. And the more I want to forget Krishna, the more Krishna will provide me with association that helps me forget him. This is, we just see this practically. The more I'm in harmony with Krishna, the more facility Krishna makes for me to increase that harmony with him. Of course, sometimes, and there's 
Um, there's exceptions, like Prahlad, who's born in a family of demons, and Vena, who's born in a family of devotees, but in, in general, it's like that. So the more I'm in harmony with Krishna, the more Krishna gives me facility to be in harmony with him. And the less I'm in harmony with him, the less he gives me facility to be in harmony with him. I mean, this is just practical. Just like if I'm your friend, the more that I'm your friend, the more you give me facility to act as your friend. You'll spend time with me, we'll share things together, you know, we'll, we'll share confidences and so forth. And the less, and that increases our feeling of friendship, which then increases that facility. And the less I want to be with you, the less those things will be available, and then the less I have a feeling of friendship with you. This is just uh, normal. So all these opulences for somebody who's in Krishna consciousness are simply acting as impetuses for service. They're not acting as bewildering factors. Just like one of the main bewildering factors the demigods pull on yogis or aspiring devotees are, you know, beautiful heavenly women. But it can be, you know, anything. (laughs) Any kind of material opulence can be bewildering. But Prabhupada says that one should see all beautiful women as Krishna's gopis. Not literally that all women are literally gopis. But in other words, they're all meant to be enjoyed by Krishna. Prabhupada was once meeting with some new people new to Krishna consciousness and he said to the woman, you are a very beautiful woman. Use your beauty in Krishna's service. So this is the way that the devotees see material opulence. They see that opulence should be used in the Lord's service. And when devotees love Krishna, they want a lot of opulence to be used in his service. They want everything to be wonderful. They want temple buildings to be beautiful, to be clean. They want facility for the devotees to be beautiful and clean. Right? This is one of the um, anubhavs, one of the symptoms of having love for Krishna, as mentioned in the nine stages of bhava, the stage of bhava. That attachment to places where the Lord lives and it's explained this can mean places like Vrindavan, Mayapur, Ayodhya, and it also can mean a temple of the Lord. Frankly, it means when we make our own home a temple. And part of showing this attachment is having everything beautiful, having everything opulent. Now, in Kali Yuga, we cannot afford real pearls. <laughs> and Prabhupada cautioned us that if we had real jewelry for the deities, it would attract thieves. I mean, many deities have some pieces of real jewelry. But this is what factually happened in India, is the deities were all being, this is probably speaking from experience, the deities were decorated with real jewels. You know, real diamonds and real emeralds and real pearls and real gold, and it attracted thieves. (laughs) So a lot of the the jewels in the British Museum were stolen from India. You know, <laughs> so uh, Prabhupada didn't want people to, to be stealing from our temples and therefore we had to make some adjustment. But the devotees, at least everything should be very nice. Okay? And what happens is when we want to make everything nice for Krishna, 
then Krishna provides facility to make everything nice. You know, at least do what we can in, in Kali Yuga so that things aren't falling apart. You know, there's fresh paint on things. We, we can always put things away <laughs> and not have clutter and, and so forth everywhere. You know, you go to the, the temple in, in Vrindavan or Delhi or Mayapur and they're beautiful buildings and they're kept very neatly. Everything's put away nicely. You know, and I've been to other temples where, you know, the book table, you can see the cardboard boxes of books under the table. And there's five different signs behind the table. Um, some of them are outdated and, and so forth. You know, this is, this is not how we worship the Lord. So again, there's this, this circle that when we see things that are beautifully done and clean and neat and in good repair... That it, it's, it brings a higher mood, and in that higher mood, we naturally want things that are clean and neat and in good repair. So the other day we have here at the temple, we have a circular thing, used to be a fountain, and now it's, it's planted, it's plants inside there. And then around there, there's the ground is covered with small, white, smooth stones, and there's some benches for sitting. But there were a lot of weeds growing there, so... Uh, myself and another devotee, we were pulling the weeds. And I said to this devotee, you know, most people won't notice consciously whether there are weeds here or not. It, it's not that on a conscious level they're going to notice that there's weeds. I said, and especially if there's no weeds, they're not going to notice. <laughs> people tend not to notice the absence of things. I said, but if there's, no, if, if there's weeds or not, it will affect people's consciousness. And this devotee said, if there's weeds growing, will they be more likely to talk Pujalpa? And I said, definitely. You know, you come to a place and there's, there's no weeds and there's beautiful flowers growing and there's scented plants perfuming the atmosphere. And it changes one's consciousness. It changes how one behaves. It, it's interesting that in sociology they talk about the broken window syndrome. That if in a neighborhood broken windows are not fixed, then small petty crimes will increase and gradually more severe violent crimes will also increase. Why? Because when broken windows go unrepaired, it sends a sign that nobody cares, that nobody's in charge, that nobody's managing and we also see in the first verse today how Lord Ramachandra was personally managing the kingdom. Not only was everything opulent and conducive, but he was personally involved. Prabhupada said he was not a sleeping monarch. He made sure that everybody had occupations that were commensurate with their natures, and he made sure that they did their occupations according to the rules of scripture, the rules of dharma, as it says in the end of this chapter. He didn't violate religious principles. So this is how each of us, as representatives of the Lord, we also should be personally attentive in our area of service. Our area of service may just be a little room in the brahmachari uh, quarters. Or, you know, our areas of, of service may be a whole temple. Our areas of service may be a whole zone or a whole planet. You know, we've <laughs> Sometimes our area of service is, again, just a little room. But whatever is our area of service, we should be personally attentive. 
a Srila Prabhupada, one time the devotees complained that something wasn't getting done properly. And the devotees went, went said to Prabhupada, well, they're not doing it. And Prabhupada said, what is this they? He says, that is bureaucracy, they. He said, you are all they. Uh, so we shouldn't be sleeping monarchs of our kingdom, whatever our, our, whatever our kingdom is. Maybe we're, we're in charge of, of a little preaching center. Maybe we... Maybe we have in charge of something at work. <laughs> Whatever we're in charge of. You know, and this is not just in a temple, not just our home, but even in our employment. What are we in charge of? What's our area of jurisdiction? And we should be responsible to take care of it in such a way that people will be inclined to sattva and be inclined to remember Krishna. We want to, to set up things with some beauty. You know, even if we have absolutely no money, I mean, we have water, <laughs> unless we're living in a desert. At least we have water. We can clean. And it, it, at least we can, we can smile. <laughs> we can create that, we can create an opulence of attitude. Right? We can create that, a kind of, that kind of opulence. We may not create an opulence of emeralds and gold and pearls and sandalwood and a guru and that kind of thing but we can create an opulence of our mood I mean it's interesting thank you for my breakfast it was interesting I'm part of a a little group of devotees we were doing some service and one member of the group kept derailing the group by complaining about everything and anything especially ISKCON leadership I mean just constantly complaining we had we had a meeting yesterday. We had, it was only a half an hour meeting, and for you know, like the first, first fifteen to twenty minutes, he was just complaining and complaining, and, and finally, you know, he finally left the meeting and thank you, Krishna, left the group. But you know, instead of ha- helping all of us think of Krishna, he was helping all of us forget Krishna, and he was just so full of anger and frustration that he was polluting the atmosphere. You know, so wherever atmosphere we're in. We should be purifying the atmosphere. Maybe we can't do it with emeralds, maybe we can't do it with pearls, maybe we can't do it with real frankincense and real aguru, but we can do it with our consciousness. And actually, that's even more powerful. Uh, Tirtapad is a name for a great devotee because wherever they put their feet becomes a tirta, becomes a holy place. When we think about Srila Prabhupada, Srila Prabhupada came out of India in a materially poverty-stricken condition. He didn't have pearls and emeralds and and a guru, and you know he could he couldn't come and, and sprinkle the roads with perfume. He didn't have that kind of opulence, but he had the opulence of Krishna Prema. You know, he was he was radiating Krishna Prema, and so as soon as you came in his presence. You immediately felt purified. I remember when we first met Srila Prabhupada in 1974, so I was initiated through the mail before I met Srila Prabhupada. And uh, my husband had met Prabhupada previously when my husband was a brahmachari. But this was the first time I was meeting Srila Prabhupada when he came for the Chicago Rathiatra. So my husband and my father, who had come for the Rathiatra, and myself, we went to meet Srila Prabhupada in his room. And... And we were there 20, 30 minutes. 
And we had a very nice conversation, mostly conversation between my father and Shiva Prabhupada. I didn't say anything. Uh, it was a very sweet conversation. And when we left Prabhupada's room, my father looked at me and said, now I know why you've come to this movement. This is a genuine holy man. And I didn't ask my father at the time what made him say that. I guess I didn't want to risk shaking his feelings. Uh, but I, I wondered, why did he say that? What was it about Shrim Prabhupada? 20, 30 minutes being with him, that would cause him to say that. I mean, in many ways, the, the things that Shrim Prabhupada said in that conversation were extremely profound. But they were fairly simple things at the same time. And I never did ask my father why he said that. But what my own conclusion is that when a person is saturated with love of God, you feel that in their presence. You know, therefore we say that the physical body of a devotee is not material. It doesn't act materially. There are so many instances in the Catholic traditions where after a saint passes away, uh, and wherever they're buried, people will touch the body and become healed and so forth and so on. So anyway, we can make opulence like that. And our renunciation is not supposed to be... Uh, actually, Rupa Goswami says that vairagya is not an anga of bhakti and that we are interested in yukta vairagya. So it is not that we want to shun neatness and cleanness and beauty, but that we want to use them as an impetus for Krishna's service and as evidence of Krishna's service. And that makes everything auspicious. So we have about seven minutes. If anybody has questions or comments. I know this is also being live streamed, so maybe some of the questions um, are coming from uh, YouTube or other places, and someone can put them in the chat. How do we use our personal beauty in Krishna's service? Uh, well, beauty is very attractive. Also, people tend to trust someone who's beautiful. There's a lot of studies that show that beautiful people, and tall people, by the way, are more trusted and make more money. So you can use your beauty as a preaching tool. If you're very beautiful and you preach, people will listen to you more and they'll believe you more. They, that's a fact. That's just a sociological fact. Anybody else have a question? Hi, Krishna. This is Anjanika. Hi, Krishna. I just have an appreciation. I mean, I find it so beautiful that you touched upon... Um, how devotee is so detail-oriented and that that we can recognize how everything we do carries an energetical reaction. As you mentioned about the weeds, even though people may not notice their absence, they will feel the difference yes. when they're not there. I find this is a beautiful wonder that actually... All these things, even though they may not be so grossly um, visible or, or felt, they are still affecting others. And so it's that further responsibility that we, we have to take. 
as spiritual warriors. So thank you so much. I find that to be so beautiful, especially as you mentioned that broken window syndrome um, and, and essentially voiced all those things that somehow we consciously know, really aware of um, by intelligence. So thank you so much for bringing those points up. Thank you. Thank you very much. Anybody else? We could take one more comment or question. Here we have one. Uh, I was actually wondering with the idea of when you were explaining about all the things that are not available now because of how as human beings we've exploited the earth. I just wonder if then it would be relevant to think of um, environmental protection as devotional service in the sense of that if we are taking care of the environment of Mother Earth of Bumi, then we're able to have those opulent things to be able to offer to the Lord, or if that's even something that yes. is just going on. Well, almost anything can be done in any of the three modes or in bhakti. I mean, there's some things you can't do in bhakti. You can't run a liquor store or, you know, you can't be head of the mafia for bhakti, for, in bhakti. Sorry, it doesn't work. You can't be, you know, a mafia hitman in bhakti. Sorry, if that was weird. Aspiration. Uh, but other than things like that, uh, anything can be done in, in any way. So one could become an environmentalist in the mode of ignorance. You know, just out of anger and, and criticism and... We're gonna we're gonna destroy all of those polluters and you know. You could be an environmentalist in the mode of passion in Rajagun. You know, we are righteous people and we're gonna save the earth and I'm gonna put my statue in the park. And you could be an environmentalist in Satvagun that we're gonna save the earth because we're all in harmony with the earth and we're part of the whole ecosystem and it's our duty to save the earth as that's our part in the universe. And you could be an environmentalist for Krishna. That's one of the seven purposes of ISKCON, is to bring the members closer together, uh, to train them how to live a more natural life. And just like in so many of our temples, we have Radha Krishna deities, and we decorate the deity of Srimati Radharani. That's also our service to Krishna. And there are devotees who have that as their eternal service in the spiritual world, decorating Radharani, decorating the gopis. So Krishna can enjoy them. And I'm sure that's, I'm sure, absolutely, that that's true in Dwarka also, uh, decorating Krishna's queens. I'm sure, absolutely, no doubt about it, that there's thousands of maidservants who clean the, uh, the room of the queens and uh, decorate them. So Bhumi is one of Krishna's queens. If we were doing like that, then Krishna's very pleased. Yes, and Krishna wants, the, he wants his queen to be beautiful. And she wants... She wants us to be able to have real aguru and real sandalwood and, and, you know, organic vegetables and real grains and, you know, it's not that Bhumi likes all these climactic disturbances and all these pandemic viruses and, you know, it's not that she likes that. We wouldn't even have this COVID-19 if the world was vegetarian. It wouldn't even exist. Wouldn't have it. You know, if people were burning frankincense and myrrh and camphor and there was a guru sprinkled on the streets and people were vegetarian, we wouldn't have these diseases. So, yeah. 
And we have a last question here in the chat. How can we express our concerns still make others remember Christians that are disturbing their minds? Um, take responsibility. The main thing we're supposed to do is take responsibility in our area of service. And if it's not our area of service, we should leave it alone. If we're disturbing others' minds, we're probably not doing service. As Krishna says, one who is not disturbed by others and who does not cause disturbance to others. One should not be a source of anxiety to others by their body, mind, and words. So if we're acting as a source of anxiety to others, we're probably not doing bhakti. We're probably in Rajagun or more likely in Tamagun. Thank you very much. Prabhupada Ji Jai.